Good morning. This morning, I'd like you to turn in your Bibles to the book of Genesis, chapter 11. The very first book in the Bible, Genesis, chapter 11. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you this morning that you are not distant. You're not aloof. You're not disinterested. You care about your people. You care about your creation. You're the one who will intervene into scary situations. You reveal yourself to us. You encourage us. You save us. I pray that you would reveal yourself to us this morning as we consider your word. Strengthen your people. In Jesus' name, amen. I was recently reading one of my favorite pastors from years back, uh, Pastor Ray Stedman. And he gave an interesting recommendation which really caught my attention. He said, if you want a wonderful experience, take your Bible and use a concordance to look up the two little words, but God. See how many times human resources have been brought to an utter end. Despair has gripped the heart. Pessimism and gloom has settled upon a people. And there's nothing that can be done. Then see how the Spirit of God writes in luminous letters, but God. And the whole situation changes to victory. So I did that. Now, nobody uses a written concordance anymore. I have a digital copy of the New King James Bible. I pulled that up, and I put those two little words, but God, in the search tool. I also searched on the phrase, but the Lord. I ran the search. And sure enough, there are all these examples in Scripture of God intervening in wonderful ways. So for the next several weeks here on Sunday mornings, we're going to be looking at some of those but God moments. And this morning, we start with a really interesting one here in Genesis chapter 11. The story of the Tower of Babel. Begin reading with me in verse 1. It says, Now the whole earth had one language and one speech. And it came to pass as they journeyed from the east that they found a plain in the land of Shinar, and they dwelt there. Then they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They had brick for stone, and they had asphalt for mortar. And they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower whose top is in the heavens. Let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. 
Now, most Bible scholars believe that this event has taken place about three to five generations after the worldwide flood that destroyed everyone on planet Earth except for Noah's family of eight. They were preserved on the ark. So this is taking place roughly about 100, 120 years after God started over with the human race from the family of Noah. And you notice that everyone is together. Verse 1, now the whole earth, that's everyone alive on planet earth at that time, had one language, one speech, one tribe, one culture. Everyone speaking one language. What language was that? Well, English, of course. No, I'm not. (laughs) We don't know which language I would... Say something very close to Hebrew, if I had to guess. But that's the situation. One group, one tribe. I read numbers of around 30,000 people, perhaps, all together. Now, the Lord had given a very clear command to the human race after the flood. In Genesis chapter 9... We read, God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Again in verse 7, he said, As for you, be fruitful and multiply. Bring forth abundantly in the earth and multiply in it. Pretty clear command. Spread out. Scatter abroad. Multiply and fill the earth. But that one tribe was a rebellious bunch. They didn't do that. They didn't scatter abroad. Verse 2 says they traveled east. They would have camped at the foot of Mount Ararat where the ark came to rest. They would have been there for a while and then they traveled southeast into a place known as the Fertile Crescent of the Middle East formed by the Tigris and Euphrates rivers. In the Mediterranean Sea, they came to a place called the Plain of Shinar, which will also be known later as Babylonia. The mighty kingdom of Babylon would be built there. And notice what it says at the end of verse 2. They came to the land of Shinar and they dwelt there. Permanently is the idea. They settled there. They laid their roots down there. They all came there and said, this is going to be our home. We're going to stop right here. We're going to build a city here, our houses, our structures, this big tower. Now, this is rebellion against what God had told them to do. God told them to scatter. You can see their attitude of rebellion at the end of verse 4. They said, we're going to do all this lest we be scattered abroad. So this is defiant disobedience to what God had said. We will do things our way. We know better than God. We're staying put right here. And then, of course, you notice their supreme arrogance. They have a boastful confidence about themselves. Come, let us 
make bricks. Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower whose top is in the heaven. We're going to do great things. We're going to achieve great things. And they started to work and they began to do some very impressive things. They made their own bricks. Something that was a big deal back then. I see them with this little brick making conveyor line and factory. They're building this city. They're building this tower. It says they used asphalt for mortar. Very interesting detail because asphalt is the same word that's used to speak of the pitch that was applied to the bottom of that little basket that little baby Moses would be put in. This waterproof substance. So in a sense they're saying no flood's going to hurt us again. We're going to waterproof our city, our tower, our walls. We will build this great thing. And notice their motivation. Let us make a name for whom? Ourselves. This will be for the glory of man. This will be a defining achievement for the human race. This will be an eternal testimony to the ingenuity and brilliance and resilience of the human spirit. This is the same old tired lie that Satan has been telling the human race since the fall of man. As the serpent said to Eve in the garden, do what you want. Don't obey God. You can be like God. This whole thing was a massive, united, arrogant, rebellious effort to bring humanity together wholly apart from God. Humanism. The worship of human intellect, human power, human effort. And this tower says they built this tower into the heavens. Why did they uh, build this tower? It wasn't for protection. It wasn't for security purposes. It wasn't for artistic value. It was religious in nature. Most believe that this was one of those ziggurat structures of the ancient world, like a pyramid, but with steps. So a big platform at the bottom Smaller platform centered on that, smaller, all the way to the top. Now, at the top of these ziggurats, those were places of worship and idolatry. They'd put altars up there. They'd worship pagan gods. Babel, in Hebrew, is a name that that means the gateway to the gods. Some... Bible scholars suggest that at the top of that tower was an altar surrounded by the signs of the zodiac. And I think that's probably right because we know that astrology originated with ancient Babylonian culture. So they're building this tower not to worship the living God. They're inventing their own way to heaven. They're making God in their own image. Everything about this scenario is ugly. 
It's mankind in rebellion. Yes, they were a rebellious bunch. And it even appears that that one tribe at that time, living on the earth a little over 100 years after the flood, had a leader. One guy in charge. A guy by the name of Nimrod. Nimrod in Hebrew means the rebel. Listen to what we read about Nimrod in Genesis chapter 10, verse 8. Cush begot Nimrod. He began to be a mighty one on the earth. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore it said, like Nimrod, the mighty hunter before the Lord. And in the beginning of his kingdom was Babel. Eric, Akkad, Kalna, in the land of Shinar. So Nimrod, the rebel, the mighty hunter, hunter by the ways well, the word that literally means killer. He's a warrior. He doesn't just kill animals. He kills people. He's in charge. He's calling the shots. He's taking advantage and exploiting that situation. He's exerting control on a bunch of gullible people. He's a godless, ruthless, brutal tyrant. See, now, this is very important. In a fallen world, it's dangerous when the world becomes one. Please understand that. This worship of the human spirit and this oneness, it's dangerous because someone has to be in charge of that. And if you get the wrong guy in charge of that, you're in big trouble. By the way, in fact, what's happening here in Genesis chapter 11 is a preview of what's going to happen in the last days. The last days teaches that one day the world will become one. A one world government, a one world economy, a one world religion. And there's another Nimrod who will come on the scene. The Antichrist will take charge and it will be a very, very ugly situation. And I think right now our world is headed towards that one world government. We're all connected. We're all speaking the same language. You know what that language is? Zeros and ones. Digital communication. Everyone's linked up like never before. Google Translator. I can type to a friend in Russia in English. They read it in Russian. Respond in Russian to me and I read it in English. Everyone's becoming one. Now, I know globalism is the rage right now, but I'm not into it. I think it's very dangerous. Now, I will be a card-carrying globalist in the future. You know when that's going to be? When Jesus is in charge. I'll be all into globalism then, but not now. It's a very dangerous thing. For a sinful human race to be one. So look what's happening 
just 120 years after God started over with the human race. Rebellion, idolatry, arrogance. So God had to intervene. And that's where we get these wonderful words. But God, or in this case, but the Lord. Look at verse 5. All this is going on. But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the sons of men had built. Now there's irony and humor in that. That's what the author meant. The Lord came down to see. The idea is he stooped down. The idea is this great tower that was so great in the eyes of man was so small and microscopic in the eyes of God that he had to stoop down to take a closer look. What a picture. Here man builds these great things, these awesome monuments, these big things. And God's like, what's that little matchbox city down there? He stoops down. The one true God of heaven is so much bigger. Than any human being, than any human effort, than any city, than any corporation, than any enterprise, than any human breakthrough in science, than any human technology. Never forget that. Human race, never forget our place. God is so much bigger. And God stooped down and came down to stop it. He stopped that rebellion. Verse 6, it says, And the Lord said, Indeed the people are one, and they all have one language, and this is what they begin to do. Now nothing that they propose to do will be withheld from them. Come, Let us go down and there confuse their language, that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad from there, over the face of the whole earth. They ceased building the city. Therefore its name is called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of the earth. And from there the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of all the earth. So in the first part, man's like, come, let us, come, let us. In the second part, God says, come, let us. By the way, an obvious reference to the Trinity in the Old Testament. Come, let us. And God proceeds to, in a moment of time, undo everything that rebellious man was doing. In a moment of time, he confused their languages. No longer speaking the same language. Can you imagine that? How crazy that would have been? Brought absolute confusion. They were trying to make a great name for themselves. Now they can't even pronounce one another's names. They even changed the name of the city to a different way of saying Babel in Hebrew, which means confusion. 
gateway to the gods will now be confusion. It's known as confusion today. Babble, 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 babble. Babble, babble. And then the Lord scattered them across all of the earth. Now they said, we're going to stay here lest we be scattered. Nobody's going to scatter us. God scattered them. You know, it could have been a miraculous thing. God literally could have scattered them, transported them out of Babel into different places. God can do that. Or it may have just been that they spent several days trying to figure out who spoke what language. They group up by like languages and they move on and they scatter. Either way, God stopped that effort. Now, this is where different languages came from. This is the different nationalities. This is the different races. It all took place. The book of Genesis is the book of origins. It's a very important book for us as Christians. Gives us the beginnings, the creation. The institution of marriage and the family. What went wrong in the garden, the fall, sin. Later on it will talk about the origin of the nation of Israel. Here is where all the languages. This is the Bible's explanation for all of the different nationalities, races, cultures, languages. Now the evolutionists and the social, they'll say, you know, we spread out over billions of years. We first spoke in grunts. And eventually we went in all these different areas and we developed different languages. No, that's not what happened. God confused the language of the human race at Babel. He spread them out. Now you say, but linguists tell us that we have over 7,000 languages that people are speaking on planet Earth today. You mean to tell me God invented 7,000 different languages for 30,000 people at that time? No, God didn't invent 7,000 languages. Because those linguists who study such things have categorized languages into what are called language families. So a bunch of languages together are bundled up under a language family. The Niger-Congo language family consists of 1,542 languages. The Indo-European language family is made up of about 448 very common languages that most of the people on planet Earth speak. Linguists tell us that there are 94 language families. Some say that there are many as 150. I think they're wrong. I think there are 78 language families. And why would I say that? Because in Genesis chapter 10, you have the table of nations, how everyone's spread out. And everyone went out in 78 different directions if you do a careful count. God did it. And it was God intervening. Breaking up that party of rebellion. Now on one hand, you could see this as an act of judgment. 
But on the other hand, you could see this as an act of mercy. God was saving man from destroying themselves. That's why he intervened. Now you read verse 6. It says, the Lord said, indeed the people are one and they have one language. This is what they began to do. Now nothing that they propose to do will be withheld from them. Don't misunderstand that. That's not God freaking out saying, oh no. The human race is pretty strong and they're getting stronger and they might undo me. God wasn't afraid of what man might do to him. God was afraid of what man might do to man. So he separated them. When it says nothing will be impossible for them, they speak one language, nothing will be withheld. That's not referring to the heights of accomplishment that mankind might achieve, but to the depths of sin to which mankind is capable of falling. God's like, man, it's been a hundred years. They speak one language. Look at their rebellion. Look at how wicked. If I don't do something, they're going to get to a place where they'll never even consider me. So he moved in. He separated them. He stopped the work. God was saving them from the delusion of humanism. It's a very dangerous thing, my friend. It's the lie of Satan. The human race is godlike. Man, if you get to believe that, you're so delusioned. And in a very practical sense, he was placing restraints and boundaries upon a sinful human race for their own protection. It was important that he separate. That's setting limits, that's setting boundaries. If God hadn't baffled the languages, Nimrod's occult brand of religion would have become normative for all of humans and doomed them. God wanted to separate the population so that rebellion and apostasy could be minimized and remain localized. Listen, we live in a fallen world and the potential of the sinful human hearts, man, you've got to have restraints, you've got to have boundaries. That's why we have governments and laws and court systems and different nations. That's all checks and balances. Balances of power. So a nation like Nazi Germany starts coming up war. Well, other nations join together and stop it. That's the way it is in a fallen world. That's why God separated. Because the potential of the sinful human heart. So God intervened. And I think this was merciful. He will not let mankind to destroy themselves. Now, you need to know, and you already know this, but the Babylonian spirit, the humanistic spirit, is still very much alive today. This idea that humanity is great, 
Humanity doesn't need God. And you will see hints of it all over culture. At global events like the Olympics, the world gathers to celebrate and worship the human spirit. Our buildings, our cities, all the things that we do. The Twin Towers were described as temples of modern commerce and shrines to the ingenuity and prowess of the American technology. So many people thinking they're big shots. I'm God. I'm better than God. So a guy like John Lennon from the Beatles can say, we're more popular than Jesus now. Or the words of that famous poem, I'm the master of my fate. I'm the captain of my soul. Those words could have been etched onto the walls of the Tower of Babel. Beware of that. Many people believe that. A few years ago, the Arizona Republic newspaper carried this local profile about a man by the name of Gordon Hall. Listen to how this reads. It's dusk. Gordon Hall stands at an overlook on his 55,000 square foot mansion in Paradise Valley, a structure built by Pittsburgh industrialist Walker McCoon and now owned and being renovated by Hall. He is 32 years old and a millionaire many times over. He stares at the range of lights stretching before him from horizon to horizon and breathes a deep, relaxed sigh. The lights of the city are like the campfires of a great army to Hall, who sees himself as its benevolent general. They're like the flashlights of the world's fortune seekers, and Hall is their beacon to riches. They are for Hall like the stars of the firmament, and he is above them. He's worth more than $100 million, he says, because it was his goal to be worth more than $100 million before the age of 33. There are other goals. By the time he's 38, he will be a billionaire. By the time his earthly body expires, and he's convinced that he can live to be 120 years old, he will assume what he believes to be his just heavenly world, Reward, Gordon Hall will be a god. We have always existed as intelligences and spirits, he says. We are down here to gain a body. As man is now, God once was. And as God is now, man can become. If you believe it, then your genetic makeup is to be a god. And I believe it. That's why I believe I can do anything. My genetic makeup is to be a god. My God in heaven creates worlds and universes. I believe I can do anything too. Well, the God named Gordon Hall is now spending the rest of his life in prison for racketeering, tax evasion, and fraud. But how many people have that spirit? I don't need God. I'm like God. The triumph of the human spirit. The worship of the human spirit. 
we're weak. We need to know our place. God is much greater than us. We're so weak. As they say out west in these parts, ain't no horse that can't be rode. Ain't no cowboy that can't be throwed. Bad grammar. But absolutely right. Hey, listen, cowboy. You think you're a big shot? You think you don't need God? Truth is, we all need God. Desperately. Abundantly. Man's heart is filled with sin. The capability of sin can be so devastating. We're lost. We're hopeless apart from God. And I would say the ultimate, like, but God moment in the scripture is John 3.16. But God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever would believeth in him would not perish but have everlasting life. God sent Jesus, and if you put your faith and trust in him, all of your sins will be forgiven. And then, as a Christian... Do everything for the glory of God, not the glory of man. Not your own little kingdom. Work for him. Is it wrong to strive for excellence in what you do? No. Is it wrong to build a tower? No. Is it wrong to work with others to build a tower? No. Is it wrong to build the tallest tower? No. Is it wrong to advertise that you built the tallest tower? No. We should do everything with excellence. It is wrong and it is dangerous when it becomes for the glory of your name. Your pride. Your arrogance. Your kingdom. Build towers for God. He saved you. You belong to him. Do everything for his glory. Listen, please understand, you could be a part of the most incredible enterprise on on planet Earth. The greatest building, the greatest thing that's ever happened. And you're a part of it. You're leading it. Never forget, God stooping down. What is that little? God's way greater. Do everything for him. Seek to glorify him and lead others to him. I want to close with a psalm out of the book of Proverbs, which I think is very, very pertinent. Proverbs 18, verse 10. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run into it and are safe. Is the Lord your tower? Have you found safety in him?
Are you doing everything in your life for him? Would you bow your heads with me and close your eyes? Lord, I pray that we would never forget our place. You're the great one. You're the master. You're in charge. We're the servants. We serve you. Lord, protect us from becoming a part of that effort to make ourselves great. Lord, you didn't create us to worship ourselves. You created us to worship you and glorify you. So I pray, Lord, as we go into this brand new year that our goal would be to make you known, to live in such a way that pleases you and glorifies you and points others to you. Do that work in our hearts and through our lives. Now with your heads bowed and your eyes closed, perhaps you've never made the Lord your strong tower. Maybe you are... Man, you've been relying upon all the towers of this world. You've been seeking everything that this world might have to give. And, and, and it's lacking, and you know it. You're dissatisfied. You're disappointed. And well, you should be. Nothing in this word, world can fully satisfy you. You were created to know God. And God sent his son to die on the cross for your sins. And he rose again that third day. And you can become a child of God right now by placing your faith and trust in Jesus Christ who died on the cross for your sins. Ask him to be your Lord and Savior. God will become your strong tower. And then live for him. Let him change you and direct your life. And spend the rest of your life serving him, glorifying him in whatever you do. If that's you, if you've never received Christ, just in the quietness of your heart right now, surrender your heart. Just say this, say, Lord Jesus, you're the master, I'm the servant. You're great, I'm not. You're holy, I'm sinful. So 
So I bow before you right now. Thank you for dying on the cross for my sins and rising again that third day. Wash all my sins away. Make me yours. I want to be a part of your kingdom. Help me to live for you. In Jesus' name, amen.